This is Carl Treacher and Martin Betts, the founders of HEDEX, and this podcast is focused on the changing landscape of the higher education sector. Welcome to the Higher Education Experience. This episode, we'll delve into culture and sector health, and we'll speak with a very special guest, Professor Sally Kift. G'day, Martin. G'day, Carl. It's um, an interesting time to be addressing subjects like this at a very challenging time, I think, in society generally, and certainly in the sector. We've just recently had Mental Health Week, of course, and I think we're acutely aware of the challenges that people are facing in their home environments, with families, and certainly in workplaces generally. Universities are far from being exempt from that. I'm interested to see, uh, well, as the weeks roll on, you know, from my perspective, I'm mostly interested to see in action rather than words and press releases and who's doing what. I'd like to start seeing a little bit more from the sector in terms of not talking about strategy. I think strategy is one of those words that is overused and under-realized. So I think if we start seeing universities demonstrating and executing plans uh, I'm going to get a sense, a greater sense of confidence in their ability to sort of pull themselves out of uh, the situation they're in. Well, we're certainly seeing some executions of, of, of um, the short-term emergency plans um, happening in our universities at the moment. We've gone from forecasts of how many job lessons there will be in many universities to mm-hmm. actually job, job cuts and reorganizations taking place. People are starting to learn their fate, learning about the, the fate of their colleagues. Students are coming to the end of you know, the second semester where it's been even more challenging in many cases than the first because of the build-up of pressure. Actions are Mm. taking place in universities and people are really feeling it at this point in time. And I think that's, here's a danger, here's a danger area, okay? So as we know from 20 years of, you know, corporate culture uh, consulting, the culture will take care of itself. It will actually shape itself. Culture is organic. Whether you like it or not, um, you know, it will take hold and and make its own destiny unless you have a hand in it. So these are quite um, key symbols of culture that are taking place. So when you talk about those executions, that that speaks volumes. What is required around that is the nurturing and the support and the clarity and the context as to what these actions mean. So in the corporate sector, organisations are quite guilty of you know putting values up on the wall and screensavers and in the lift and making big town hall statements at you know, at hack days or, or whatever it might be, which is which is great and it's all part of culture. What what they fail to do a lot of the time is to make it surround employees or surround all stakeholders with evidence and signs and symbols of what's taking place as part of a bigger picture. So I think that's the part that I'm really fascinated with with universities tr- traditionally from my understanding and by all means, please correct me, but they, they haven't done even the first part that well to say, here's what our culture is. You know, if I Google search university culture manifesto, I get one. So even just to make a statement to say, here's what our culture is, here's what it's supported by, here's the pillars, here's the things that you can expect to see in terms of the fabric of being part of this association. Um, you know, there's a lot, there's a long way to go. And it's a sort of, for us, it's absolutely culture 101 and I'm not seeing it happen. Well, I think the, the sector as a whole has been a little bit scared off of, of using the culture word up until now. It, it, it likes talking about vision and purpose and values. Mm. And there's been some resorting to um, drawing on our, our university's values through some of the executions that have been happening this mm. last little while. But I think largely the sector has been operating on adrenaline since March. In its yeah. first phases, I mean, I mean, we've in our interview later later in this episode with with Sally, we'll hear her coin a term 
of just what the experience has been in the sector that I think is very appropriate. And we'll return to that 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 later. But um, that adrenaline, of course, only lasts so long. And, un, uh, and and values can only be some sort of guidance to the decisions that get made. But ultimately, I I agree with you. We'll we'll need we we will have cultures emerging. Um, from this current these current circumstances, and we'll have a huge amount of work involved in in rebuilding and evolving those cultures to be sustainable into the future. And I think if you think about the the decisions made when uh, when you're under under fight or flight, you know they're really the best decisions. You, you think about the support that's required when you're in that altered state of reality, and and it's this I suppose where consultants actually. Earn their, earn their stripes. And I think that's a bigger conversation too when we talk about consultants. You know, the consultant through COVID consultancies like, you know, PwC and Deloitte and even the, the, the next tier up with McKinsey and Boston, et cetera, they're all hurting. So they've got actual financial commercial imperatives to make sales. Now, that's fine and they've all got a high, high degree of integrity, but are they actually making those sales um, – in the best in the best interests of the university because that's what's required or are they make them because they've got a target and this there's a real contradiction here and being a 20-year consultant and working with those firms there is a real challenge for them how do we deliver the best solution for the problem in front of us with and make our numbers one of the things that i've always had absolute opposition to is that way of thinking that if we don't have an independent, a bona fide, legitimate, third-party, independent perspective as a consultant, you can't do your best work. So I'm worried that some of the consulting solutions that are going into the universities aren't actually the things that make a difference and they're more meeting the agenda of the consultant. Well, I think, I think there's a lot of um, evidence that that might be the case. And I think what you're describing there is the, the fact we've got, we've got all the systems that we're analysing here under pressure. We've got vice chancellors and their executive groups under pressure. And we know only too well that leaders resort to preferred behaviour styles under pressure, which are sometimes, well, often, let's face it, not in the best mm. interests of the culture and the, and the staff development of their organisation. And if you've got then... A consulting sector that's under similar pressure for numbers. You've got two two forces that might be leading to some less than optimal um, means of the higher education experience moving forward in a positive way. So, yeah, I, I, I'm absolutely sure that there's a gap there, a gap there that's a, an urgent one to be addressed, and some means of getting off of the life support system of adrenaline and and building some sustainable. Um, nurturing environments in the leadership ranks and, and, and in the staff, staff and student ranks of our universities as we go into 2021. And so let me, let me ask you this question. The work that we did with Griffith University, you know, half a decade ago now, I suppose, but that was a very successful piece of work that I, I came in with my firm, the Brand Institute. We did a large piece of research. We built a very clear plan for the development in terms of reputation and recruitment that, that essentially worked. And in that, I made, a, made it very clear to the executive, there's two parts to this. The first part is your brand strategy based on what we know from your stakeholder needs and your market needs. The second part is the only th way that a, a strategy or a plan works is to be driven by a particular type of culture. Now, at that time, everyone sort of started shuffling papers and looking out the window when I, when I talked about that. And as the project continued, they continued to do that. And so I made it very clear in no uncertain terms, this won't work unless you bolt on the culture component. They work hand in glove. They are one and the same thing. 
And yet there was this real reluctance to even talk about it, to get involved. And yet we had a track record of doing this with some of the world's largest companies, which was incredibly successful. And I roll into a university and they say, yeah, look, uh, I'm a bit worried about culture. What's the problem? What is the actual deterrent here? Well, I, th I think the deterrent has probably been as much as anything um, a lack of a burning platform up until now. I mean, universities have prided themselves on focusing on the core business of, of operating the way that universities have always worked. And while there's been m many um, portents and forecasts of disruption and change, people haven't really responded to it. This is, these are different times, Carl. These are very mm. different times. We, we, we have a crisis going on in our universities, a crisis in, in terms of the mental health of students and staff, as we'll hear a little bit more about soon, and in terms of leadership and the trust that they have in themselves and that their staff and that their stakeholders have in them. And that's because they're under enormous pressure. And this, the, 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 for, for them to not understand that this is a time when you have to take culture seriously is unthinkable given the, the sort of pressures that we've seen building in 2020. Good. Well, I really hope, hope that is the case because it's a very conservative estimate that suggests that 80% of all culture you know, programs or culture initiatives fail. And they do fail. They fail for two reasons. They're poorly understood in terms of what culture is and everyone's got a different definition. There's enough literature now there's enough evidence now and there's certainly enough um you know academic rigor inside the universities to be very clear on what culture is and the second part is if they do understand it they don't invest in it because they don't think it actually makes a difference and we know you know from anything from back in the day of you know the the former ceo of ibm saying the most important thing in an organization is culture through to everyday examples of any organization you can look at um, to suggest that it is time to, to take it seriously and, and, and make a move and then stop talking about it and actually start doing something. Well, I think there's, um, as, as we'll hear about in a little while, there's a, there's a regulatory and, and um, a framework of, of accreditation of our universities that actually puts an, an, a requirement on them to think of this at the future, uh, at, at mm. the present. But, but mm. I think the future commercial realities are such that the, the, the rebuilding that will come out of our current circumstances, we'll see some universities thrive and others continue to struggle. And those that will thrive will, will build out of the current circumstances of their, their people in their organisations that are going through some pretty brutal cuts and some very different working conditions and environments. An ability to build some, some great collaboration, some great innovation, some great focus on, on their students, some different ways of working, some embracing of technology. And, and that won't happen by anyone telling those staff to do that or directing mm. them to do so. It will, it will happen by them feeling empowered, committed, mm. and really in a position to embrace the opportunities that are, that are starting to be what I think is the great opportunity for our universities right now. Why don't we tap into your conversation with Sally this week and then after that we can get into the, the, the framework and the foundations of what you know, culture foundation or culture establishment and cultural alignment actually look like. I think that's a great idea, Carl. Sally had um, a lot of really interesting and confronting things to say. Let's, let's, let's listen to her now. I'm joined today on the Higher Education Experience by the former Deputy Vice-Chancellor Academic of James Cook University, somebody who's the President of the Australian Learning and Teaching Fellows, and also a visiting professorial fellow at the National Centre for Student Equity in Higher Education. Someone who's a leading thinker and practitioner in the sector 
um, in the areas of the student experience of our, our universities. Professor Sally Kift, welcome to the Higher Education Experience. Thanks very much, Martin. So I'm so pleased that you've joined us because the issue of, of the student experience in our universities is in a lot of people's minds at the moment, and it's going through some enormous changes, I'm sure, um, in, in many of our institutions. I wonder if you can just set the scene for us, Sally, by outlining what you believe and feel or have evidence to be the biggest challenges our students are experiencing in their studies and in their work with our universities right now. So it's an interesting question and I suppose I'd take issue in the first instance that our students are not a homogeneous entity so the challenges are quite disparate and very dependent I think on their lived experience of their learner engagement. Uh, many students in the wake of COVID-19 uh, have newly experienced disadvantage, for example, additional caring responsibilities. And for many others, I think the disadvantage that they already were experiencing has been exacerbated. And I'm just trying to use a, a different example. So, for example, students with disabilities um, during lockdown, not having access to their normal health services. Um, and again, I suppose uh, across all education sectors, digital po poverty has surfaced as a big issue for, for everyone. Access to technical hardware as whole families learn and work from online, uh, online from home, uh, access to the internet, access to bandwidth. Many students are facing financial challenges and this brings into frame higher degree research students. There was a survey done in April 2020 of 100 and, sorry, 1,076 uh, higher degree research students, 75% of whom say they're experiencing financial hardship, of whom 45% expect to be forced to disengage from their research in the next six months, a number of whom will probably never return. And the HDR students say that this has been a PhD crisis waiting to happen. And I suppose also our international students, when we're thinking about students, they're facing multiple challenges. I think the students' ability to engage effectively and efficiently in and with online learning and teaching and the support we provide with for them, provide them with to do that. Um, and I think that issue persists even as we start to go back on campus because many, many lectures are still being and, and tutorials are still being delivered in hybrid mode. I think the employability opportunities now are a big issue and a big challenge for students in, a in, an, in an economy in recession where job losses are far from temporary and young workers have been hardest hit and they're a big component of our student populations, not totally, but a big component. So this plays out for them both in terms of part-time work that they need to sustain them through their studies and for graduate employment as they go into a job market where, where jobs are in short supply and, as, and applications are very competitive. And we've only just recovered from the GFC really in terms of graduate outcomes. Gosh, that's a very um, rich and sobering picture you're painting there, Sally, of um, all the experiences you have with these issues of students that are really, whether the, the metal, metal issues of all of our students taken together or the particular ones of all of the different groups that you've talked about being pretty tough at the moment. I, I, I imagine you would have views on the need for each university and the university sector as a whole in Australia to respond to that challenge. And what, what, what are those responses that universities are making? And do you have a view on how effective and adequate they are? There's, I mean, I think we've got a lot to be proud of. I think we all pull together very much and probably internationally as a sector that we've never seen before. But in the immediate frame, I think it's been quite a struggle 
We'd engaged in what some have called an initial phase of pedagogical triage. And I don't think we can confuse that with the delivery of quality, well-designed digital learning environments and comprehensive coordinated uh, digital student experience. Um, some of the colleagues in the US have called what we've done internationally, uh, panicgogy, panic and pedagogy, panicgogy, see what they did there. Yes. Um, I'm, I'm sure that all institutional boats will rise on the panicgogy swell, but the quality and sustainability of the enhancements will very much depend, I think, on how robust our reflection is about what worked and what didn't. And I think all higher education providers would probably do very well to engage deeply with their students as partners in an interrogation across the whole of the student experience. Learning and teaching assessment, obviously, but their administrative engagement, the provision of supports and services, that holistic digital experience, which I'm not quite sure that we've got anywhere near right yet. Um, our institutional communications, technology, use and availability, just everything. Um, it's not my natural resting state being positive, but I think there's a few things that have shone through really well. Um, one of them, I think in particular, is the agility of our whole of inst institution cooperation between academic and professional staff to pivot, which seems to be the verb of the pandemic, to new learning, teaching and support delivery modes. Um, we've made significant enhancements, I think, in cross-institutional coordination and collaboration for integrated pandemic responses. With levels of, of mutual trust and respect, I think it could be observed that we've not otherwise seen to date. So it's been, it's been a great time, for example, to be alive for technology enhanced learning advisors, and they've got great kudos in the, in the sector now, and rightly so. What if we can just take us in a, a slightly different direction? The, the other aspect of coming back to, to staff and how they're experiencing things at the moment, we, the, the, there, there would appear to me to, in some of the policy pronouncements to be an encouragement for, for greater differentiation between big research players and those that are perhaps focusing more on the student experience between our universities in the future. Interesting your comments on that. And whether individual academics working in our universities are likely to become more specialised in one or other of those activities. Do you have a view on whether that's likely to happen, whether that would be a good thing for student experience? Well, that's a big question. A student and student experience, institutional dif differentiation, um, staff, staff well-being. I think I heard in there as well. I'm, I'm sure people in business faculties, and we forget, of course, that we've got a lot of experts within our own institutions around this. And again, that could be a collective exercise that we could do, traversing research, teaching, and the service remit of our institutions, and articulating holistically the contribution that our higher education sector could make in responding to grand challenges, which the pandemic, I think, is writ large. But putting that altruistic idea to one side for a moment, uh, I think good leadership in our, in our higher education institutions for the future um, will think about that differentiation piece. The, the longer-term sustainability would seem to dictate that that must be the case. You see some interesting um, developments where new vice chancellors are taking over and articulating a different vision for their new institutions. And I think the leadership churn across the sector is another interesting moving part. I mean, you just think about the number of vice chancellors who have recently vacated and new ones coming in and the churn in, in the DVC ranks, putting again aside to, to, to for, for, for one moment, um, a discussion about whether that um, 
the heaviness of the upper echelons is is warranted. What, what, what is the culture like within our universities right now? And what will it need to be like to deal with the really confronting challenges that you've outlined today? And, and what can we do to try and evolve that culture in a way that it's going, what can leaders do to try and evolve that culture to try and maximise the support we can offer to students? Again, a difficult question, talking about culture, but culture is the piece, isn't it? Culture is what drives successful organisations and our institutions are just large organisations. Um, people are culture. That's probably the name of a HR department there somewhere. Um, <laughs> the, the way my, so I'm not in an institution at the moment, but I still talk to a number of colleagues and I'm doing a lot of presenting and hopefully good deed doing, doing for learning and teaching. Um, you'd like to think in this current environment that learning and teaching as core business in our institutions will rise to the top. I'm not sure that necessarily is going to happen. You've got a lot of very good, passionate colleagues there who are really working their guts out, to be frank, in very difficult circumstances, trying to do the right thing by students, their institutions, the public good around this, understanding and empathising because many of them are going through it themselves, the difficult circumstances in which they're learning at the moment. I'm not sure that there is that culture of trust within an institution that is so necessary. If I could say it without um, making an observation as to the rights or wrongs, if you, if you follow the commentary, there seems again to be quite a divide between management, university management's vice chancellors and lobby groups on the jobs ready graduate package. I'm not going to grace it with the name reform and what your academic thinks about what's going on in that environment and a bifurcation of interest between those who are worried really only about a research remit and those that are worried about the whole remit, and that's a bifurcation, so I can't have a third one, can I, in that environment? <laughs> but there's also those that are, that are committed to the learning and teaching piece. Um, it seems to be going starker, whereas five or six years ago, I'd suggest that learning and teaching and research were actually coming together and we were being more holistic in our, in our responses and our articulation of, of what we did. I'm not sure that's a very helpful response and probably a bit too garbled, but there's an absence of, I think there's an absence of trust evident in the sector at the moment. And, and, it, and it goes back to this culture piece and to regain some sense of agency and sector health and wellbeing, as well as individual academic, professional staff, student, mental health and wellbeing, the autonomous motivation of doing what is intrinsically right, socially just, productive and nation building around our quite passionate commitment to learning, teaching and research might be something that could sustain us going forward. I don't see anyone leading that particular discussion. So there's some opportunities there for, for, for uh, different universities to lead that discussion and to step out from the pack and for individual academics, perhaps within our institutions to step up to the plate as well at this point in time. Is that what you're saying? Yes, I'm, I'm a very firm believer. I don't think anyone's, so I'm doing going to do a lawyer double negative. I don't think anyone's not non-agentic. Everyone's agentic, whatever their position in any institution. You can influence your own immediate sphere. 
You can influence, of course, the students that you come into contact with, not forgetting that students would be one of our core remits. You can influence in terms of the scholarship and research that you do. You can influence in terms of your, your advocacy, um, your engagement more broadly. I, I, I think it's, there are opportunities. And again, it's not my natural resting state. I only see the risk and the, and, and the downside. But I think we have to accept what we can change, what we can't, and live with the rest. And if we're going to get ourselves out of what seems to be quite the spiral at the moment, we're going to have to think how we reposition ourselves as a sector, what our role is in the broader educational ecosystem in response to Industry 4.0 automation, which we've experienced in our own institutions as well. We need to engage potentially in a different way with industry and the professions who seem to be somewhat doubtful about, some, about our contributions across some of that learning and teaching, research and service remit, which is why I say we need a holistic articulation of what, of what that looks like. And I think curating that national discussion where we can't be the change agent on our own, that would be completely inappropriate. We're one part of a very complex moving puzzle and working with everyone, including our students, could, there could be some hope for our future out of that. Well, I'm sure there is hope for the future, and but I'm sure we do need to take um, great care and pay a lot of attention to some of the issues you've raised with us today. But for joining us today on the Higher Education Experience, I'd like to thank you, Sally, so much for sharing your expertise and your time with, with us and our listeners. Thank you. Thank you, Martin. So there was um, Sally's views on some of the immediate challenges and where it might be heading into the future, Carl. What did you make of some of that? I thought that was terrific. I liked a lot of her language. I thought it was really refreshing. Um, you know, she talked about sector health, which I think is, if you look at culture, um, there's a few ways to look at culture. One is, do you have a healthy culture? So, and that means do people, it's climate as much as culture, do people like being there? Does it actually support the strategic objectives? Um, I think the second part of it for culture is specificity. It is the culture actually appropriate for our particular plan. But I thought she used some really great language there and talked about, you know, how, how do we get universities to get out of this perceived spiral? Yeah, I thought that the term panic gogy was a new one for me. And it's um, very evocative of some of the things that happened in a real hurry. Um, but you, you, you cannot be in, in sustained operation in a state of panic. And I think all, so many of our vice chancellors, and I, I imagine those listening into to some of Sally's comments will be able to identify with how they're trying to bring calm and trust and, and, and build confidence in their ranks at the moment. Mm. Um, but, but to go beyond that, to leave, leaving that panic and that adrenaline rush behind and mm. moving forward into new business models based on new cultures, what a fantastic challenge to our leaders of our institutions of, of how mm. they're going to do that well. Yeah, yeah. The, uh, coming, just reflecting on some of the other industry challenges, not necessarily COVID specific, but when you see a new, you know, Sally talked about the new, uh, the volume of vice chancellors and new vice chancellors. When you look at, uh, you know, we spend a lot of time in tech and banking. So when you look at new leaders coming in and we've watched a couple of, you know, very sort of high profile leaders come in recently, one into one of the big four banks and you, 
yeah, their, their worth is really these days about how effective they are in, in establishing and also governing culture. And right now with the Australian Institute of Company Directors focus being squarely on, you know, culture and reputation governance as much as anything else. Um, you know, the, their value and their perceived success comes from how well they can actually manage culture. How can, well can they reset culture and then govern it? So I thought, you know, part of this this podcast or this episode, we could talk about what that actually means. So for any exe- any part of the executive responsible for um, the health of the organization culture, just to almost provide them with a checklist because it's a very diverse need set. It's not just leadership. It's not just leadership communication. Well, again, I'd, I'd say I think you're right. I mean, I, I don't think vice chancellors and members of executive leadership teams of universities have ever been under so much attention mm. um, from outside their organizations, but absolutely definitely from their, their own staff and students and partners. They've in, Indeed, one of the challenges of leading in this sector is that the, the, the sort of world goes on within the university despite the efforts of leaders in many cases. Well, that's certainly not the case now. They're, they're under very close scrutiny. They're not used to it. Their scrutiny, or, or rather their performance in the past, has not been around the development of culture as much as it will be into these next stages. I'm sure that they need help. I'm mm. sure that they need to find different ways of doing those things. And I think they, they in the large part, recognise that. Yeah. yeah, I think some of our... You know, self-assessment and the preliminary work that we do to help identify the problem, you know, is probably pretty key for them at the moment. But I, I think about the the key things that they should be asking themselves inside that, um, and just generally demystifying this idea that you know culture is something that HR will do or something that sort of just happens as part of their leadership mandate. Well, that's really not the case. You know, c- culture is all about complex patterns, and we know the sector is incredibly complex. Complex. Um, complex patterns and simple rules and simple rules that help shape those complex patterns. And so getting clear on what those simple rules are as part of the plan has to be a priority. And so the evidence of that or how that's you know demonstrated always comes through the decisions that they made that, that are made, the investments that they make, the policies that they put in place, the procedures that they stand up, the symbols and the systems of what the culture actually stands for. And that's that's on top of general new leadership protocols, you know, changes in HR, KPIs, learning and development and support systems for everyone in the university to be able to get on board. So it's not just a statement that you've got to run towards. You actually have the support and help to, to get on board. And that's before you get to the thing that everyone really assumes that culture is, which is communication. You know, there's a hell of a lot in this. It's a really multifaceted model that has to be managed appropriately and by experts that have done it before. There's one thing being a subject matter expert. There's another thing going into the trenches, getting this right and getting it wrong and learning from that. I, I can see that there'll be some very fast learning cycles. It's ironic that universities are places of learning, but everyone that's in those universities is learning such different things right now. And you're, you're talking about um, some some good and well tr- tried and trusted from the commercial sector sort of frameworks and principles for doing that. I think mm. the principles of universities and their leadership and their culture are cha- have changed very dramatically this year it used to be that excellence was paramount Mm. and i'm sure that that i I imagine if you're a vice chancellor right now you're trying to balance and re and rebalance the thoughts around how excellence remains important but you're also trying to create 
or make a response, and we heard this from Sally, to the very, very different challenges of diversity and equity right now. Mm, yeah. And the thing that's probably most significant of the outcomes of 2020 in terms of culture for universities, I, I would think, is the need for innovation. Things mm. will need to be different. So not only are we going to drive for excellence like we always have, and equity like we must, but innovation because it's the requirement of the time. What culture will lead that? Will allow that to thrive? Well, the, I want to loop back to where I started in talking about Griffith University and remarkable. To be honest, you know, we came up with a concept there that was broad enough and in a brand relevant sense to be able to incorporate excellence, incorporate innovation, and to ensure that it's remarkable in whatever way appears to be remarkable for you, whether you're a student or a teacher. The point of that strategy and that plan and that brand position was that at every turn, every intersection, every centimetre, you should see, feel and be able to um, engage with a remarkable experience. That is where it fell down. To my point earlier, strategy only works with culture. The cultural component of that particular effort, and look, it was successful in its right, but certainly I wasn't satisfied to where it got to, given its potential. It was about how did people start saying, wow, this is a really remarkable university. Wow, that was a remarkable um, tutorial. That was a remarkable learning experience. That was a remarkable partnership we had. All of this actually drives the future equity of the organization. And that's where I've never seen a university do it. And the first one that does it's absolutely going to kill it. Well, I can remember when you first did the reveal of, of that brand positioning to me and to our executive team. And then yeah. as we watched the roadshows of it being rolled out across Griffith University, it was, it was fascinating to see how people immediately identified with it and thought, I can see mm. us in that. And the, the lovely strap line that we had with it of Griffith is a place where we believe in, strive for and celebrate the remarkable. For yeah. me, that encapsulates the commitment to excellence. The belief mm. in is the strong social justice commitment and commitment to equity in Griffith University. But I think the third component we've talked about there of striving for through being innovative mm. is going to be a really big part of how the, the next little while will play out. Absolutely. And that's all we have time for on this episode of the Higher Education Experience. Thanks, Martin. Thanks, Carl. 